Okay, so we, uh, we've come to the final chapter in Chronicles. Say final, final. final. Chapter. chapter. We thought about doing uh, the final countdown song, but we decided it was too technically difficult for us. We began this study in April of 2020. We've covered an astounding variety of biblical history, uh, of spiritually pertinent topics that we could never have known would be pertinent to our month that we're in, our days, our weeks that we're in. We've been through 38 sessions when you include tonight. They average about two hours. That's 76 hours of teaching on the book of Chronicles. Now, if that sounds like a lot to you, the most conservative estimate that we could give is that we took 266 hours of study time to produce this. Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) What do you pastors do all day? Having covered so many things, and the period of time that we covered it in was about 10 months, you can imagine we have an awful lot to say in summation of First and Second Chronicles. Tonight is going to be an extraordinary meeting. There should be a profound personal impact upon your soul tonight. We're convinced this is the right word for the right time, and that only the Spirit of God could have led us into a sequence of events that would cause this to work out this way. We're going to open in prayer, so that would be Itai, uh, Mr. Moloch, to be distinct from Molech, because this one is redeemed. Pray for us, and uh, then we're going, to, we're going to read the chapter. Right into the text, uh, Jennifer, if you don't mind, even if you do mind, let's read chapter 36, every verse, and let's finish this so that uh, it'll gain some perspective for you as we move through. And the people of the land took Jehoaz, son of Josiah, and made him king in Jerusalem in place of his father. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. The king of Egypt dethroned him in Jerusalem and imposed on Judah a levy of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. The king of Egypt made Eliakim, a brother of Jehoahaz, king over Judah and Jerusalem, and changed Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim. 
But Necho took Eliakim's brother, Jehoahaz, and carried him off to Egypt. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, attacked him and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also took a Babylon articles from the temple of the Lord and put them in his temple there. The other events of Jehoiakim's reign and the detestable things he did and all that was found against him are written in the books of the kings of Israel and Judah. And Jehoiachin was his son, succeeded him as king. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king and reigned in Jerusalem three months and ten days. He did, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. In the spring, King Nebuchadnezzar sent for him and brought him to Babylon, together with the articles of value from the temple of the Lord. And he made Jehoiachin's uncle, Zedekiah, king over Jer Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God, and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke the word of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him take an oath in God's name. He became stiff-necked and hardened his heart, and would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful, following all the detestable practices of the nations, and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on the, his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord was aroused again against his people. And there was no remedy. Wow. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary, and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man, old man or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple, and the treasuries of the kings and his officials. They set fire to God's temple, and they broke down the walls of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. All the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord, the Lord moved the heart of King Cyrus of Persia to make a proclamation throughout his realm and put it into writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, said. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with you and let him go up. Wow. <laughs> so in April, we began this study. Now that you know how the book ends, we want to look back at where we started and draw your attention to some of the things that you have learned that you may not have realized you picked up. 
So, back in April of 2020, we began by drawing your attention to the title of this work in Hebrew. So, in Hebrew, the book is called Devari Ha Yamen, or at least something very close to that. <laughs> Literally means the words concerning the dates. Look, in the Hebrew Tanakh, Chronicles is counted as one book, and it's called The Words Concerning the Days. We noted reflecting upon that, that ironically the Hebrew title given by Ezra is in reference to his days and the days of his people. And we now, looking at it ten months later, are beginning to understand that Chronicles in these days equally refer to our time and what is happening in our midst. Wow. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit led us to the work that we needed to be studying for the time that we came to this point. So the Hebrew calls it Divrei Hayamin. The Septuagint labels it. <laughs> <laughs> you like that? Yeah. We ought to get it right. I mean, if we're going to try. <laughs> now this one, somebody else can help me with. The Septuagint labels it Parale Pomina. Oh, nailed it. Got it. <laughs> try. And it means supplements to First and Second Kings. Man, we told you then that we thought this title was inappropriate. Ten months later, you can see why, can't you? Yeah. Chronicles is far more than a supplement. It's a blueprint for our times. Yeah. Now, of course, you know that our title tonight in English comes from the Latin Vulgate, which calls these books Chromacon. That's where we get the word Chronicles. Which is a bunch of geeks dressed up in uh, spandex. <laughs> Look, in the beginning, we alerted you to some of the differences of emphasis <laughs> in perspective between, and not just perspective, but scope as well, in between Chronicles and the book of Kings. Yeah. So in First and Second Kings, you have a detailed political record of the time period. And that's, that's really interesting. But the writer of Chronicles, he provides a distinctly religious record. He shows particular interest in the Davidic promise. It's not that Kings doesn't. It's that Chronicles goes out of its way to make sure you understand there is hope for God's people at all times, no matter what is happening. Yeah. When we started, we told you that the placement of Chronicles was last in the canon. So in the original order of the Tanakh, it is the very last book. And that it was most likely compiled by Ezra. Look, hopefully at this point, after walking through it with us week after week, you can see why that's a reasonable assertion. You can tell the differences in writing between Chronicles, Kings, and Samuel. Look, we have a picture that you should be familiar with, but we want to remind you of the Hebrew construction of the Bible as it relates to Chronicles. So we have the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We go through the Nevi'im. Lastly, we come to the writings. While each of these pieces of the word are intended to affect a man in a different way, the very last part of the writings is Chronicles here. Back in April, we maintained that the placement of Chronicles was significant as a link to the book of Matthew. Having come to the end of the book and seeing the phrase, there was no remedy, should make the reader hungry for the remedy described in Matthew's Gospel. Oh, yeah. So let's just reiterate that once. The Tanakh closes with Chronicles in the statement, there was no remedy. Matthew opens with a son of David that is a remedy. Amen. It was designed to cause us to be hungry for the coming of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Now when you guys hear that, 
You're like, oh, of course. But when you started the study of Chronicles, was that in mind at all? No, no. no of course it wasn't. If you had spent a thousand years, though, and your Bible nearly closed with the phrase, and there was no remedy, can you imagine what that should be causing you to hunger for? Yes. Well, between Ezra and Jesus, there's 500 years where we're waiting for the remedy. We're waiting for Messiah. And that's one of the reasons that the Hebrew uh, concepts in the Newer Testament have to be preserved. If you saw it as the Brit Hadashah, if you were yearning for the completion of God's plan for Israel, then that's how you would see the Newer Testament, as opposed to uh, some Gentile additive. Okay? You're learning to put that in its historical context, and it will add meaning to the Scripture. Further proof of that thought is the disciples in the book of Acts, they see Jesus and they say, Lord, at this time are you going to restore the kingdom back to Israel? They had that thought because the last book of their canon was Chronicles. Now, one of the first scriptures that we shared with you back in April when we started Chronicles is Psalm 119, 49 through 50. It says, remember your word to your servant, for you have given me hope. My comfort in my suffering is this. Your promise preserves my life. Amen. In some ways, the book of Chronicles documents this truth. The Davidic promise preserves the life of the nation even when encountering the chastisement of God. That promise is what kept them going in God's sight. That's why he preserved them. Like so many things in the Bible... Israel is the central focus. Say central focus. Central, central focus. focus. It's the central focus of Chronicles and of the whole of Scripture. The entire Bible is about what nation? Israel. Israel. Got it. Yet the Scripture constantly hints at the universal nature of these truths to all humanity. Yeah, so to emphasize that, we want to take an overview of the book again. We did this with you in the beginning. And we want to do it with you again, because when we did it the first time, everybody's like, oh, yeah, oh, okay, that's, that's cool. Like, what's next? When are we going to get to something? Now when you hear it, I think you might hear it differently. The very first verse in Chronicles is Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. Although the book of Chronicles is primarily focused on the southern kingdom of Judah, it begins with the patriarch of all human beings, Adam. So it is focused on Israel, but where does it start? Adam. This is illustrative of the truth, namely that anything Israel struggles with is true of any believing human being, regardless of their ethnic origin. That's why something that is written to them still speaks to you so loudly. One of the major messages is sin brings captivity for Israel. Yeah. And of course, sin brings captivity for all the rest of humanity. Yeah. Romans 2 points this out. It's deeply ingrained in Paul's psyche. He says, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. In this way, all humanity is being served by the example of Israel. 
You can watch their life like an older brother and know exactly what your life is going to look like if you do the same things. Get to the last verses in Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 36, 23. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Notice that the book opened with all of humanity and then it progressed to the one nation on earth that the Lord chose to make an example in both judgment and salvation. These two verses we read to you back in April, but we have a growing understanding of what they mean. The book ends with Israel among the Gentiles and a Gentile that God had moved upon saying to all of them, calling them, go up and be alongside the God of Israel. Look, again, this is true first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. We have a remnant that has experienced persecution and yet a voice that the Spirit of God is speaking, calling to men to go up. This has been the original pattern, the original path. And as we want you to know, from the time of Adam to now, there has been a singular call coming from the Lord that goes first to Israel, come up to where I am, that goes out to all of the Gentiles. Chronicles and all the rest of the scripture hint in various ways at this truth. The plan is not a haphazard one. It's not random. It's not flexible. It's not Indian stretchable time or Hispanic stretchable time, as some of my friends like to say. It's not subject to amendment or abrogation. It has literally been the plan since the world was created and the first man was put on the earth. Look, we have a few passages that attest to this that we would like to hand out. Our first one is going to be Matthew 25, verse 34 through 35. Paul Rosales, will you get that one? Emmy, will you get Revelation 13, 8? Brenton, 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 20. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Since when? The foundation of the world. Now, if you are a Jewish audience listening to a Jewish Messiah that you believe is a Jewish king in the line of the son of David, what kingdom do you think we're talking about? The kingdom of David. Yeah. See, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of Israel become synonymous. They, at points in history, are not because they're divergent. But in the end of our historical epoch, they will be synonymous. This is God's king installed on God's hill, ruling the kingdom that God designed. You cannot remove that national an ethnic element from it because that's who the promises came to. And if he doesn't do it for them, then you would have no hope that he would do it for you. Who had Revelation 13, 8? All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who has slain from the creation of the world. Now, did you catch two things? Since the creation of the world, 
there has been known by God that there would be a beast that would receive worship. And since the creation of the world, there has been a lamb that was slain. This was God's plan since the creation of the world to have a lamb that was slain for Israel and by Israel, first and foremost, so that the entire Gentile world around them would be saved through them. He showed them over and over through Passover, and that was their clue into what Jesus would do. Hey, who is First Peter 1? Verse 20. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Look, there are two pieces we want to pick out of this verse. Again, he was chosen before. Somebody say before. Before. The creation of the world he was chosen. It's almost as if the Lord in his infinite wisdom that is beyond us understood that a problem would arise and he prepared an answer in advance for us. But was revealed in these last times for your sake. Saints, when was Peter writing? We're talking about a first century epistle that was revealed in these last or later end times for your sake. Man, if these words were true in the days of Peter, how much more are they true in our times in day? They've been revealed for our sake that we might recognize the times that we're in and hold to the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Luke, while we're on this subject, there's a sign hanging behind my bold head. It says, one life, one family, one nation. That's something that the Lord revealed to me over time, and our ministry has been built on it. But he has always had a plan for one life, one family, and one nation. The life of Jesus Christ, the family of Jesus Christ, and the nation of Jesus Christ are the answer to the world. That started with the life of David, and the family of David, and the nation of David. And before that... The life of Abraham and the family of Abraham and the nation that would come from Abraham. The fact that there are many lives, many families, and many nations involved never erase the first life, family, and nation Amen. that were involved. Back in April, we, in every passage we're reading to you right now, we read to you at the introduction of the book. We're just hoping it means more to you now. Back in April, we said it's worth noting that the chronicler is clearly tracing a promise from Abraham through the rebuilding of the temple and the restoration of Israel. His particular emphasis is on the Davidic line. It's our hope now that you can clearly see that what we said is in fact true. Now that you've read the last line of the book that closes with the issue of rebuilding the temple. In April, we spent more than a little bit of time teaching on verses from Ephesians demonstrating the promise that was being chronicled to the Jewish people through the Davidic covenant and that it was a mystery that you and I would have any participation with them. But what a glorious mystery it is, huh? Look, we outlined this book for you. And like most outlines... You're looking at it, and because the material's not that familiar to you and you haven't gone through it, it might not have meant as much. So we want to go back over that outline with you again and show you what you were introduced to those 38 sessions ago. And notice when you see the phrases, when, when you hear these things, that you now have associations with them that you didn't have 10 months ago. That's the point. So this is an overview of both books of Chronicles, which is one book. 
We covered first the genealogies, which are chapters 1 through 9 of 1 Chronicles. Chapters 10 through 29 cover the reign of David. Then we move into the second book of Chronicles, which covers his son, the reign of Solomon, chapters 1 through 9. Do you see some parallels between the first book of Chronicles and the second book of Chronicles? The first nine chapters are setting the book up. Then we saw the Davidic dynasty in 2 Chronicles, chapters 10 through 36. Again, we were emphasizing the events being chronicled as an introduction to the book of Matthew, which introduces Jesus as a son of David. Chronicles starts with a genealogy. Matthew starts with a genealogy. As you look at this next slide, it will give you an idea of the time period in history that we said we would cover. And you have the opportunity to visualize what you learn. Now pay attention to the orange and red sections on this familiar timeline. All right, you guys see the orange and red sections over here? So when we remember that we go verse by verse through the chapter tonight, this timeline is of particular significance in relation to 490 years that the land... Sabbath was not properly observed, resulting in a very specific number of years that they go into captivity. That number is 70 years. We're going to cover this in a little more depth later on, but this whole time frame is about 500 years. And there are certain laws and ordinances that were supposed to be observed during that time frame. Let's take a minute and we'll go through some of the major events that we said you would learn in our study time and that you should now have an understanding of as we wrap up the book this evening. So the first book of Chronicles, the house of Yahweh, the house of God. The first nine chapters, as we mentioned, cover Israel's main genealogies, Adam to Jacob, Jacob to David, then David to Zedekiah. Now I know when you were doing your homework and you read the first nine chapters, you saw each of these names and remembered them in perfect clarity. But we had to be reminded of it ourselves. Ezra took us from Adam to the last king of Israel that we are covering tonight before we got into any of the major text. He traced it for you in the first nine chapters to the last king of Judah prior to captivity. So why would he do that? Because God's plan for all mankind, starting with Adam, revolved around what he would do in Israel. But more specifically than that, what he would do within one particular family in Israel, the Davidic family. More than that, what he would do through the kingship that that family would establish. Ezra wanted you to link all of humanity to what was happening on the Davidic throne. And the book of Matthew and the book of Luke both pick up with Jesus being the recipient of the Davidic throne. The answer for all of humanity but through Israel. Does that make sense to you? I doubt it did 10 months ago. (laughs) Then in chapter 10, all the way through chapter 29, look at the progression or listen to the progression. We start off with David being the anointed of the Lord. Then we move to the anointed ark of God being moved into the capital of David. We have a son uh, of the Davidic house who is receiving the very throne ark throne of God and the first thing they do is renew the covenant of the Lord it's for Israel 
but it would be for all mankind through Israel. Then the next thing they did, they build a temple. They lay the plans for the temple. They lay it out there, which would be a house of prayer for how many nations? All of God's plan hinges on what he does with Israel, with the Davidic family, and with the Davidic king. That's how we set it up, and it's been set up since the creation of the world that way. It's just being revealed progressively through time. Do you feel like you're getting a little better handle on the plan of God? Yes. Now listen to where Ezra takes this as we go into the second book of Chronicles. In the second book of Chronicles, he begins with Solomon building the temple and the throne of God on earth. Man, that, that was exciting, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. yes. Look, we started in the first nine chapters in Solomon's 40-year reign. We saw everything that was on the earth in the tabernacle begin to become magnified on the earth. We saw the early establishment of Solomon. You remember he was young and inexperienced, and yet he had the plans, and God said that he would be a son to him, and he would use him to build the place where God's name would dwell forever. We saw Solomon building the actual temple. We saw that everything that was in the tabernacle got extremely bigger, and it was built not just for Israel, but for the nations as well. Then we went into Solomon and all of his glory. This is known by scholars as the golden age of Israel. And we saw some parallels into the messianic age that Solomon, a son of David, began to expand and push Israel's borders almost to where God promised Abraham they would be. And the nation streamed to it. And he set up 12 regional governors. I mean, this is millennial in scope. But like all biblical prophecy, it is also rooted in the historical past. Everything that God predicts is something in the future. He foreshadows by it being an actual historical event in the past. If our branches of theology could get that straight, we would not have so many branches of theology. It's true. Chapters 10 through 36, which we have been spending the bulk of our recent time in, contain the division of the kingdom. So this is right after Solomon with his son Rehoboam, where the kingdom splits. Chapters 10 through 36 go from Rehoboam all the way to Zedekiah, which is our context this evening. There are 20 kings between Rehoboam and Zedekiah. And you've studied them all. (laughs) And it brings us from the golden age all the way up to the deportation to Babylon. That's quite the distance that we've covered. Look, we have a slide that summarizes the two kingdoms that you may remember from the past that we want to work through quickly. So the northern kingdom, Israel had 19 kings that reigned for approximately 250 years. They had seven different dynasties that made up those 19 kings. One way to say dynasty is family. They bounced around between seven different families. That's never been God's plan. It never will be his plan. There is one family that is supposed to reign. 721 B.C., they went into captivity under Assyria. Now, you see the note there, there's no return. They never had a formalized return. But as we've noticed over and over again throughout Chronicles, there were members of the northern tribes that came to Judah in Jerusalem that found refuge. There were some that were left in different areas. Let's talk about why that is for just a second. 
the government of Samaria never returned and reestablished because it was not God's plan that they do so. But the people of the northern tribes joined into or were incorporated within the southern kingdom because God's plan was always for one nation, not two. That's rooted in the historical past and it is predicted as the future still. That's right. So the southern kingdom, that is Ezra's primary focus. Twenty kings, they reign 370 years, which we have come to the end of this evening. With one dynasty. One. What dynasty was that? Davidic. One dynasty that is the Davidic dynasty spanned 370 years with 20 kings. It comes to an end in about 606 B.C. in the Babylonian captivity. And we will break down those interactions tonight. But after 70 years, they will return. This is the primary background of the dynasty of the king who is coming to rule the earth. It's painting the picture of the one singular dynasty that will be everlasting to the end. Look, I want to show you another another slide, just a rough sketch of the kings of Israel and Judah side by side. Yes, very small. You can see here that in the red, those are the kings that did evil. Or maybe you can't, but we'll we'll tell you about it. (laughs) The gray, which I can see, are the kings that did good and evil. Some might say they didn't do any good at all if it was mixed. The white are the kings that did good before God. Look, the northern kingdom lasted roughly 250 years and was defined by doing evil. You can see that by that long red streak on the right. It's almost like if you separate from the people of God, you'll be defined by evil. The southern kingdom was defined by a cycle of sin and repentance. It was conquered by Babylon after about 350 years, but returned in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. The New Testament period is largely dealing with the southern kingdom because they came back to a governmental power. Look, as we conclude this review and begin our verse-by-verse analysis of the final chapter, there is one more central point that we want to remind you of. There is only one way. There are not two ways. There are certainly not seven ways. There is only one life that this hangs on. There is only one family that this hangs on. And there is only one nation that this hangs on. We want to show you that Samaria is characterized by two, not by one. This is the rough division between Judah and Samaria. Judah is pictured in purple. Samaria is pictured in green on this map referred to as Israel because of the time period. Here you see the two locations, the two convenient campus locations that during difficult times you simply video broadcasted to, one at Dan and the other at Bethel. That is a marker of the wrong way. There is only one way. The first time that God's plan is ever seriously fractured, and that was even by His design, is to show you this is wrong. And it's being repeated all around us right now. And it has been for some years. It's larger. It seems impressive. And it is totally wrong. It's based on choosing priests that are not really priests. 
It's based on convenience over sacrifice. It's based on something similar to the truth, but that is sinful and is not the truth. The southern kingdom is characterized by only one place of worship. That one place of worship has one pattern for worship. It's the tabernacle complex that is swallowed by the temple complex. Only one way to approach Him, only one right way to do things. Now, I hope that's become much clearer through the study of Chronicles. Because we've also mixed in the study of the celestial powers. We have also mixed in a, a true study of repentance. We have also mixed in a study of Daniel and a study of Revelation. And tonight, some of that is going to come to fruition. We're now going to pick up in the first verse of chapter 36 and go verse by verse. But can I just ask you all, because we put some 300 hours of study into this. Have you learned something in the last 10 months? Okay, well, amen. Then we're not failing completely. Brother Linton, will you start us out with our chapter this evening, verse 1 through 3. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, son of Josiah, and made him king in Jerusalem in place of his father. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. The king of Egypt dethroned him in Jerusalem and imposed on Judah a levy of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. Look, so we want to just start out by pointing out that Jehoaz's father, Josiah, died in a conflict with Necho in the last chapter. Does anybody remember that? Yes. That conflict has affected the next generation, and quite quickly, to see how many... He was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem. Three months? Three months. You can't even have a baby in three months. It's almost as if generations are compounding, either for righteousness' sake... Or for the trouble that accumulates because of bad decisions and sin. Necho has not gone away because Josiah was dead. He's still a threat and he's still an enemy. But he goes ahead and he deposes him. Then the king of Egypt dethroned him in Jerusalem and imposed on Judah a levy. Some translations say a tax. And we're going to learn about levies and taxes over the next couple of years. Well, in the next four years, yeah, there'll be quite a few new taxes. Of a hundred talents of silver and one talent of gold. Look, a great deal of silver had to be paid. A hundred talents of it. Might need a way to say a great deal of redemption was needed at this point in time. But very little gold or divinity was left in the kingdom of Judah. He was able to exact silver but very little divinity. In fact, a ratio of 100 to 1. Look, as we keep going in these verses, this is going to characterize the kings that we're going to see all in one chapter. Get verse 4, Linton. The king of Egypt made Eliakim, a brother of Jehoahaz, king over Judah and Jerusalem, and changed Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim. But Necho <laughs> took Eliakim's brother, Jehoahaz, and carried him all to the now, Jehoahaz was in conflict with the king of Egypt. But it is likely that his brother, Eliakim, who was the rival for the throne, so this is Jehoahaz's brother, he was the rival for the throne, it's likely that he allied with Pharaoh Necho. Wow. It's likely he allied with him in exchange for the kingship. Can you imagine Eliakim saying, hey, yeah, I'll hand I'll help you take my brother, and in turn, you make me king over Israel. Wow. 
Now, he probably did that for exchange of the kingship and the hope of protection from Babylon. You remember that Pharaoh had been fighting against Babylon in the previous chapters? And Pharaoh actually beat him once before. So it's possible that Eliakim said, hey, look, give me the throne. I'll be your pawn and protect me from Babylon and I'll hand you over my brother who's in conflict with you. That brings up something that's kind of interesting. And we're going to straighten out these names for you as we go. Yeah. But if Eliakim allies with Egypt against his brother in the hopes of being protected from Babylon, number one, it doesn't work. <laughs> okay. Number two, how unfaithful could you possibly be to ally with a foreign power against the only family that is supposed to rule? One of the possible reasons, we struggled with this today, we fought with it. How do we get from Eliakim to uh, Jehoiakim and why would there even be a name change? Why does an Egyptian king named Necho care what this Hebrew guy's name is? Is that a question anybody? Of course you thought of it. We want to give you a possible reason. Eliakim, which is his birth name, means whom God establishes, like needs to establish, is ongoing. The only difference in the name Jehoiakim is it's more in the past tense in Hebrew. <laughs> Jehovah has set up. Do you think that maybe Necho is, is broadcasting a message here? Yeah, he may have always been supposed to be king, but I'm the one that made him king. I gave him the name. I gave him the seat. He comes to power under the aid of Pharaoh Necho. Well, with so many kings in the chapter tonight, with four kings of Israel in the chapter tonight, or Judah rather, and a king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and a king of Egypt, Necho, we thought we would help you straighten this out. Is that all right? Yes. All right, so here's a chart that will help you keep them differentiated in your thoughts. We begin with the words that Jehoaz is the son of Josiah. Can you all see that on this chart? Okay. Then we move to Jehoiakim. His name is also Eliakim, but I'm going to leave it as Jehoiakim so that we can keep it straight tonight. We go from Jehoahaz, the first king in our text tonight, to Jehoiakim, the second king in our text tonight, to Jehoiachin, <laughs> the third king in our text tonight, and then the last king before captivity, Zedekiah, who is the uncle of Jehoiachin. Okay? If you still didn't follow that, Judah made another slide. <laughs> Look, we were trying today. I got one more for you. Okay. So if you notice here, this family tree is spread out a little bit. Jehoaz is our first king, and he is indeed a son of jo Josiah, which is confirmed in Chronicles, Kings, Jeremiah, multiple places. I know it may have been a little difficult to see earlier, but just go with a giant green arrow. Number one, son of Josiah. Second king, that is the brother that you searched. Number three, Jehoiachin. Then number four is our last king, Zedekiah, which, praise God, his name didn't start with a J, so we can all remember it. But we go from Jehoaz to Jehoiakim to Jehoiachin, and then we are going to finish with Zedekiah this evening. For the purposes of biblical study, the most important king that you could remember 
for the captivity's sake is Zedekiah because he's the last one. Okay? Uh, let's pick back up in verse 5. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, attacked him and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also took to Babylon articles from the temple of the Lord and put them in his temple there. Now Jehoiakim sought the favor of Egypt. Now where is Egypt from Israel? South. South, south and south. west. But south. And west. It's south of Israel, and he was attacked and brought into captivity by the Babylonians from the north. So this made the Babylonians very mad that he allied himself with the king of the south, and so the north king attacked. Look, you're starting to see a little bit of this. This seems to be a pattern in biblical events and prophecy. We want to hand out a few scriptures to clue you into some biblical prophecy and see what kind of picture this paints. While he's looking to hand those out, understand that through most of the Bible, this is the singular most impacting event on a nation. Yep. Okay? Uh, the most impacting event on our nation would either be the Revolutionary War or the Civil War. And we talk more about the Civil War in our present time. <laughs> the most impacting event on this nation involved a king from the north and a king from the south. That is rooted in biblical history and it is also prophesied about in future history. So let the preterist and the futurist argue this all day long. They both have elements where they're right and they both have elements where they're completely wrong and it just shows they don't understand the way God speaks to a nation. So I need somebody who can read clearly and accurately. Let Rob, you take Daniel... 11, verses 11 through 16. JJ, you get Ezekiel 38, 14 through 17. Glenn, you get Ezekiel 39, 25 through 29. That's it. Daniel 11, 11 through 16. Then the king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands, yet he will not remain triumphant. For the king of the north will muster another army, larger than the first, and after several years he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. In those times, many will rise against the king of the south, the violent men among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of vision, but without success. Then the king of the north will come and build up siege ranks and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. Look, I, I'm just going to suggest to you that some have seen Egypt to the south, uh, who Israel is relying on in the text we're reading tonight for peace and safety, as being typified in this passage. Probably because that is what was happening in the days of Jehoiakim. Daniel was writing after the days of Jehoiakim, and these events 
are predicting something that is in Daniel's future. But Daniel is being instructed by what has already happened in the past. Prophecy is a repeating pattern in the Bible. That is understood in Jewish circles, and it is not understood in Western circles. Secondly, the king of the north that ends up as victorious over Israel in Daniel 11 is reflected in Babylon, who was victorious over Egypt, the king of the south, and who invaded the beautiful land in the days surrounding Jehoiakim. Now, the, the point that we're making is that most prophecies in the Bible are rooted in historical patterns that are destined to be repeated in the future. You see this throughout the prophetic narratives. It's going to be important as we get into the book of <laughs> Jeremiah. Would you like to see it even more clearly in the book of Ezekiel? Yes. yes. Okay. Ezekiel 38, 14 through 17. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to God, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In that day, when my people Israel are living in safety, will you not take notice of it? You will come from your place in the far north, you and many nations with you, all of them riding on horses, a great horde, a mighty army. <clears throat> You will advance against my people Israel like a cloud that covers the land. In days to come, O God, I will bring you against my land, so that the nations may know me when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Are you not the one I spoke of in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel? At that time, they prophesied for years that I would bring you against them. Look, did you guys notice in verse 17? He said, I spoke of in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel. Well, what prophets? The ones that came before Ezekiel. Ezekiel, like Daniel, is writing this after Babylon has come from the north and conquered Israel. While she was saying peace and safety, these events were going on. Look, the point is even more pertinent when you realize that God has been sending prophets to announce the captivity for years in advance. And yet there was still more to come in Ezekiel and Daniel's day. There was a pattern that was revolving through history. These things happened before Ezekiel's day, the events that we're reading about this evening. But he was informed by them, and he predicted them in the future context, in the coming of the Lord, in the coming adversity that would happen, that they would repeat in a similar fashion to what Israel had already experienced and would yet experience again in the days ahead. Let me zoom out for just a little bit. And then Justin will read us or take us through another passage in Ezekiel. When the people of God learned that disobedience will cause you to be thrown out of the land, not learned it in an intellectual way where they heard it said, but learned it in a very experiential way. The attack was from the north while they were relying on help from the south. And the king of the north defeated the king of the south, and invaded the land. That's what happened in the historical context. Well, when the prophets are talking about a coming captivity and a coming restoration after the captivity, they still speak of a king of the north and a king of the south. And they do it repetitively every time. This is because prophecy is viewed in a rearview mirror in the Bible. You look back to see what has caused things in the past, And you can look forward knowing the way they will repeat again if your behavior doesn't change. 
Does that make sense? Yes. You need to stop thinking of prophecy as just a mystical prediction of the future. It is being informed about the way God has carried out his plan in the past and knowing through that insight into the scripture what he is going to do in the future because he follows the same format. Again, if our branches of theology could get this right, this is the singular most impacting event on Israel's history. So it shouldn't surprise you that the events of A.D. 70 look very similar. It shouldn't surprise you that Antiochus Epiphanes looks very similar. It also shouldn't surprise you that these things happen on the same date on a calendar three times in history. It is God warning his people like birth pains. Sin brings you into captivity. And it will always look similar. And you need to repent and get right. I am going to restore you, but every time this happens, you will suffer loss. That's the repeating message. Look, so just to put this on a practical foot quickly, if we are prophesying that something is going to happen or discerning it, it must be based upon the historical record. But what are we looking for? The right word at the right time. That we understand from the scripture what he's doing in our day and time by looking at it and having the spirit of God enlighten it. That's why we're all here tonight. Well, and while I'm just ranting, (laughs) if you don't like the words double fulfillment, you just don't understand them. Saying that there is no double fulfillment in scripture is like saying the only time ever that there was a redemptive picture in the Bible was at the cross. (laughs) But it's not true. How many different ways did God foreshadow that? And it had a present-day fulfillment. It had a fulfillment you could look at in your past. And it had a fulfillment in the future. It is teaching mankind the way that God deals with one nation on the planet as reflective of all nations. Let's go ahead and get Ezekiel 39, verses 25 through 29. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will now restore the fortunes of Jacob. I will have compassion on all the people of Israel. I will be zealous for my holy name. They will forget their shame and all the unfaithfulness they showed towards me when they lived in safety in their land with no one to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the nations and have gathered them from the countries of their enemies, I will be proved holy through them in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. For though I sent them into exile among the nations, I will gather them to their own land, not leaving any behind. I will no longer hide my face from them, for I will pour out my spirit on the people of Israel, declares the Sovereign Lord. Look, say every time. Every time. Every time in the scripture, whether we are talking about past events or whether we're talking about future events, whether we're talking about repeating patterns of prophecy, When a captivity is predicted for the people of Israel, it is always followed by restoration. Always. Say every time. Every time. Every time it's prophesied. And you can see it. How many times have Israel gone into captivity? Well, many. Eric listed a few of them, just to be brief. And every time in those captivities... God always brought back his people to restoration. This is true because God is always, say always, always. He is every time faithful to his promises to the house of David. 
Every time you read about Israel's captivity, whether future event, it always comes to restoration. Look, it's just a thought. But do you remember when Mordecai is talking to little Esther? And he's like, hey, if, uh, if you don't arise at this time, God will make a way through someone else. But who knows, you may have been born for such a time as this. How could he say that? Because every time Israel was ever in that situation, God did raise somebody up for it. Okay? That is a man who is not so much prophesying about Esther's future as being informed by a prophetic pattern in Scripture and knowing that it will occur in the future. That's how all prophecy should be viewed. Look, we probably need to reread those verses again, though, because there's some jewels here you're going to want to get. Are you all following us so far? Okay, so we're going to read 5 through 7 again to make sure that we don't miss this. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, attacked him and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. <coughs> Nebuchadnezzar also took Babylon articles from the temple of the Lord and put them in, the te- in, in his temple there. So Jehoiakim was brought to Babylon in what kind of shackles? Bronze. See, he's hemmed in by judgment because of sin. Just like the nation would be hemmed in by judgment because of sin. Just like any believer anywhere in the world will be hemmed in by judgment because of sin if they do not repent. That is a pattern we can look at in history. And I don't have to have a crystal ball to see your future. I know that this is true if you do not repent. That's how biblical prophecy works. But you want to hear something really cool? You just read about the articles in verse 7. Read verse 7 one more time. Nebuchadnezzar also took to Babylon articles from the temple of the Lord and put them in his temple there. All right, everybody go to Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Somebody say there when you get there. 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 So we're picking up in verse 1. This is Nebuchadnezzar's son. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. So that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. Now you just heard about articles that were taken, and as we pick up a little further down in the 18th verse, you're going to find out that these articles that were taken, they helped speed up, facilitate the transition of empires. Verse 18 O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. Those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant... 
and hardened with pride. He was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. Verse 22. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You have the goblets from his temple brought to you. You and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he set the hand that wrote this inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mina, Mina, Tekel, Parson. This is what the words mean. Mina, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Now think through what you just read. The kings of Judah lost their kingship temporarily because of sin. The articles from the temple were taken by a foreign power, Nebuchadnezzar. But Nebuchadnezzar's son also misused the things of God and did not honor the one who allowed him to be an authority, so his kingdom is being taken. In other words, you can look at Israel and what God does with Israel, and he does exactly the same thing to every other nation. This is true first for the Jew. Then for the Gentile, they're serving as an example and you see it in the generations between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar or between Zedekiah and Belshazzar. This is how you're being instructed right now. Yes. You're reading somebody else's history book, prophecies given to someone else, and they do apply to you. They just apply to them first. Look, as we move forward. You should be aware that Nebuchadnezzar actually attacked Judah on three occasions. Three times. When we read about the Babylonian captivity and the destruction of Jerusalem, we usually think that it is one singular attack, and it's not. It was a campaign. We have just read about the first occasion. Now, this was Nebuchadnezzar's first siege of Jerusalem. Say first. 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 Because of Jehoiakim's wickedness, detailed in Jeremiah 26, 21 through 24. Which you'll have to wait till we get to the book of Jeremiah 4. About half a year. The Lord allowed him to fall. (laughs) Chapter 26. The Lord allowed him to fall to Nebuchadnezzar, who had driven the Egyptians out of Palestine by 605 B.C. In that year, Daniel and his friends were taken captive to Babylon. Now, let that sink in for a second. While you're reading Chronicles and you get to the time of Zedekiah, you're also reaching the time of Daniel. You're also approaching the time of Ezekiel. You're starting to be able to put biblical history in its context. Now, Jehoiakim had first been loyal to Nebuchadnezzar, but after three years in 602, he rebelled as mentioned in 2 Kings 24.1. The chronicler here points out that Jehoiakim was then bound with bronze shackles 
and taken to Babylon along with the sacred objects from the temple. This was Nebuchadnezzar's first of three attacks on Jerusalem in 605, 597, and 586 B.C. So when we quote the Babylonian captivity as 586, we're skipping the first two attacks. The truth is, we'll summarize them for you at the end, we have attacks under every king listed in this chapter. It's a series of captivity. It's almost like those plagues in Egypt. This one didn't, didn't get your attention? Okay, then we'll escalate. That didn't get your attention? Now we're going to escalate, and it's warning, warning, now there is no remedy. Just like you read about in Exodus. Another side note, apparently Jehoiakim was released or escaped from Babylon because he was given a dishonorable burial outside the gates of Jerusalem. And that's mentioned in Jeremiah 22, verse 18 through 19. Let's pick up. We're going to go back to verse 8 and read down to 10. The other events of Jehoiakim's reign, the detestable things he did, and all that was found against him, are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Jehoiachin, his son, succeeded him as king. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months and ten days. Long, long time, right? <laughs> he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. In the spring, King Nebuchadnezzar sent for him and brought him to Babylon, together with the articles of value from the temple of the Lord. And he made Jehoiachin's uncle... Zedekiah, king over Judah and Jerusalem. Saying Nebuchadnezzar sent for him is a little bit, um, well, it's a, it's a very polite way to, to, to review history. The book of 2 Kings makes it clear that this is the second military siege against Judah. The phrase Nebuchadnezzar sent for him and brought him is a simplified way to say he invaded and he took him by force. Yeah. Okay. Zedekiah was evil, and God sent Nebuchadnezzar in a second military campaign in the springtime. The, the time of year helps you differentiate it from the first one. At that time, 2 Kings records that Nebuchadnezzar took the young king Jehoiachin and his family into captivity, along with 10,000 Jews. You can read about that in 2 Kings 24, 13 through 14. So in the second military campaign, it's not just a king being taken. It's not just his family. 10,000 other lives were taken because of it. At the same time, uh, Nebuchadnezzar sets Zedekiah on the throne of Judah. So he's the one that placed him there. Now, why put Zedekiah there? That's a great question. Probably because the people wouldn't have accepted a king that was not from David's family. In 2 Kings 25, verses 27 through 30, you find out that Jehoiachin was released from Babylonian imprisonment in the 37th year of his captivity, somewhere right around 560. Now, that would be an extraneous detail that I'm sharing with you, except for the fact that the Bible says he had a royal pension for the rest of his life, and that was recently confirmed in the Neo-Babylonian texts that were discovered, and in the notes you received from this meeting, we footnoted it for you. A guy named James B. Pritchard found the text that actually confirmed that this king had a pension for the rest of his life from Babylon. Yeah. And people say that the Bible can't be verified. Wow. That's quite a specific detail. Yeah. 
It is. Look, all of these events are following something, though. Each king that we're seeing, each military campaign, they follow the events that Isaiah spoke to Hezekiah about somewhere around 700. We'd like somebody to read that. Uh, Assad, would you read 2 Kings 20, verses 16 through 18? By most people's accounts, as a cumulative total, Hezekiah was a good king. And yet, judgment was coming and it was prophesied in advance and it would take place no matter what happened. It's about a hundred years between the prophecy and its events being fulfilled. And we see in Hezekiah's life that there are drastic reforms in the people's hearts turn. But immediately after him, we have Manasseh, who we covered just a little while ago. And the chain of events brings us to the place where in chapter 36 it says there is no remedy. The ability for the people of God, not just speaking about the world, to hear such serious warnings. And yet, we allow the words of God to become something that is distant and does not readily affect us in our own household, despite the prophecies. It was spoken to him not only that everything would be carried away, but that sons from his own body would enter Babylon and be made into eunuchs to serve the king. Mm -hmm. I get my attention. I I don't know what would get my attention any more strongly than that. It's worse than a threat to you. He's saying that in your generations, this is going to happen. But the point being that God spoke about these events and there is a response that a discerning church should have. The discerning people should have. It should cause us to repent and evaluate our ways in every area and learn to stand with the righteous and say just and true are your judgments, mighty one. Let's pick up on that in a a, a cultural context for us. We have some uh, moderately bad presidents and some terrible presidents. I I can't remember the last... I don't don't know if we've had a righteous president as much as... uh, People like to talk about Ronaldus Magnus. His, 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 his wife read tarot cards, for God's sake. So for us, when we read this, we think, well, you have good leaders and you have bad leaders. This is one family, though. This is, this is like a, a grandfather being given a warning that this is going to happen to his great-grandsons. And somewhere after the grandfather's uh, reforms, Everybody forgets about it and keeps doing what they were doing before. It's a pattern in history. And in church, you should be warned by it because they were a believing community just as you are. Yeah. Let's pick up in verse 11 and we're going to see this develop. Zechariah was 21 years old when he became king and reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. At this point, it's probably fitting to define Zedekiah's name. Can any of you take a guess what his name means? Zedekah. His name means, we have a slide for you. 
His name means the righteousness of Yahweh. The righteousness of God. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Doesn't that remind you of a verse that says you are the righteousness of God in Christ? Yeah. Well, this man was called the righteousness of God as well. And yet he did not heed the warnings given to his grandfathers and fathers. Look, neither Nebuchadnezzar nor Zedekiah were righteous. But Zedekiah should have known better. Yeah. He should have been able to look at the word that yeah. was spoken to his grandfather. He should have been able to look at the judges, look at the book of Joshua, look at what happened to Saul and his kingdom, look at all the previous kings, and he should have known what would happen. He could look at the last couple generations before him. Like Jehoahaz, he was evil and was vanquished by Egypt. Jehoiakim was evil and was brought to Babylon in bronze shackles during the first military siege, and that was his own brother. Jehoiachin, his other brother, was evil and was brought into captivity with his family in Babylon during the second military siege. Shouldn't this have made Zedekiah want to live up to his name, righteousness? Look, I'm going to ask you if you have all of the warnings that the entire... (laughs) Body of God and all of the past evidence point to if you do A, B, and C, you will be judged. Doesn't that make you want to do not do A, B, and C? Yeah. So on that note, just to help you, because we know these names, they're, they're tough. We've had a lot of tough names in the book of Chronicles. And may, may these men forgive us for mispronouncing their names the way that we do. Jehoahaz has got little to do with Babylon. He, he falls to Egypt. But as soon as you get to Jehoiakim, that is our first military siege yeah. against Israel from Babylon. When you get to Jehoiachin, that is our second military siege against Israel by Babylon. We are now at Zedekiah, which is the third and final siege of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. It's like warning, warning, no warning. Which begs the question, how many warnings has our nation had? Let's read verse 12 and just verse 12. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke the word of the Lord. I want you to understand something. It's not just like Isaiah had prophesied a hundred years before. The Bible makes the claim that many people were prophesying. You're going to hear that by the end of the chapter that One translation says persistently (coughs) prophesying because God had pity on the people, the land, and his dwelling place. But Zedekiah is a contemporary of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah speaks specifically to Zedekiah. We're going to read that together and we're going to interrupt you some. And uh, I don't know, I'm really excited to hear Cassidy read it. Jeremiah 21, (laughs) 1 through 12. She's preparing herself to prepare the, to pronounce those names correctly. Oh, yeah, goodness. So the context of Jeremiah 21 is in the days of Zedekiah. Jeremiah is speaking to him. In Chronicles, we get his name, and then we get that he did evil. In Jeremiah, you get some of the interactions. Son of Masjah, and the priest Zephaniah, son of Masjah, 
They said, Inquire now of the Lord for us, because Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is attacking us. Perhaps the Lord will perform wonders for us, as in times past, so that he will withdraw from us. Hold there a second, Cass. This is really... Hey, if, when we study the book of Jeremiah, you'll get to see it. None of these men are friends of Jeremiah. So why are they asking him to inquire of the Lord? Because what they really want is him simply to agree with what they want. Yeah. They want miraculous deliverance. And the word from Jeremiah from the beginning is you will not get it because that has never fixed your problem. I'd like to translate that to something. If all the miracles that you have seen at this point have not fixed your problem, then neither will another one. And you probably will not see another one with that kind of attitude. The guilt of religious people is that we have already seen more than enough evidence to know that God is faithful. So another faithful act will not fix your unfaithfulness. What they, the only thing that they could do is fall on their face and accept from God's hand whatever comes their way as just. But that is not what they want. And although they're asking him to prophesy to them, what they're really asking him is agree with us. And they actually imprison him because he will not do it. Wow. That's extremely pertinent to our times because some of us are going to live to see that happen here. Wow. Let's keep going though, Cass. But Jeremiah answered them, Tell Zedekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I am about to turn against you the weapons of war that are in your hands, which you are using to fight the king of Babylon and the Babylonians who are outside the wall besieging you, and I will gather them inside this city. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm in anger and fury and great wrath. Is this striking any present chord with anyone in the room? Yes. I will strike down those who live in this city, both men and animals, and they will die of a terrible plague. After that, declares the Lord, I will hand over Zedekiah, king of Judah, his officials and the people in this city who survived the plague, sword, and famine to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and to their enemies who seek their lives. He will put them to the sword. He will show them no mercy or pity or compassion. I'd like those words to ring true in your ear because God has shown them mercy. He has shown them pity. He has shown them compassion. And they do not want the rulership of God, so they get the rulership of Nebuchadnezzar. Wow. Okay? That is also a historical pattern that ought to inform our future. When we do not want the Messiah that God provides, he will allow a Messiah that is provided by the enemy to, to rule over you. Listen, today is the time of sober judgment for us. What happens next is another repetition of something that's been true from the beginning. It was true in the past. It's true in our present, and it will be true in the future. Amen. It is a biblical pattern. Listen to what happens next. Furthermore, tell the people, this is what the Lord says. See, I am setting before you the way of life and the way of death. Okay, hold there. Where have you heard those words before? So is Jeremiah simply hearing from the throne of God and inventing something new? No. No, he's taking what has always been true, is an established pattern, and is applying it to his day. So then do we say the prophecy's fulfilled and it's over? No. 
Oh, you mean it's true for our day too? Yes. Will it be true in a hundred years? Yes. Well, it sounds like you people believe in double fulfillment of prophecy. What's verse 9? I have determined to do this city harm and not good, declares the Lord. It will be given into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he will destroy it with fire. What was the way to save your life according to Jeremiah's prophecy? Yeah, you have to agree with the judgment of God and accept your fate. What has the word been to our church? It's been just and true are your judgments, O God. And we believe the distinction will be that we embrace whatever is coming as from our loving hand of our God on a deserving world and that there'll be light in Goshen for us. But not that we escape, that we endure and do it with smiles on our face. Okay, there's another warning here that we'll let Cass read. And I want you to notice this is being said to Zedekiah and he does not do it. Now, this is the city that God loves. Uh This is the people that he loves. But a righteous God will not endure unrighteousness from his people. And the fact that they are promised national salvation does not affect their actual state. Take a deep breath and apply that to your life. You are credited with righteousness, but you must actually become righteous or this same pattern applies to you. Israel is an older brother and it is serving as an example for you. The good news is there's still hope for Israel and there's still hope for us. But it, it comes about by repenting and waking up every day to do righteousness, not being stubborn and persisting and going our own ways. Any man, any woman in this room will bring disaster on themselves and their children and their children's children if they persist in doing evil. This is not something to be played with, and it's why we're talking about gratefulness. It's why we're talking about Joseph's storehouse. You will destroy your entire family line simply from having an ungrateful attitude. But we have hope for much better things in here. Let's pick up in verse 13 and realize Zedekiah heard this warning in explicit detail and he did not listen. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who made him take an oath in God's name. He became stiff-necked and hardened his heart and would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. Look, before I hand out a couple passages, I want to point out a detail in this text that would be easy to miss. He rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him take an oath in God's name. Not a foreign deity's name. In the Most High God's name. In the God that is over Jerusalem, that is supposed to be Zedekiah's God. The God of Israel is the one that he made an oath to Nebuchadnezzar in, that he would not do what he is doing right now. On that note, we're going to hand out a few passages, 
And bear in mind, anytime a pagan is recognizing that a Christian has not kept his oath, is a very special circumstance. Who wants Numbers 30, 1 through 2? David Hall, would you get that one? Exodus 24, 7. Steve Thomas. And then Bim. You get Jeremiah 7, 22 through 26. Numbers 30, verse 1 through 2. Moses said to the heads of the tribes of Israel, This is what the Lord commands. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. If that doesn't scare you to death, then you're not reading it seriously. How many things have you pledged? How many things have you promised? And you bear the name of the Lord. You better be faithful to do what you said. Did you say you were going to get up and pray with your kids? Did, did you say that you were not going to miss another service? Did you say that you were going to complete something that you were not doing? Because God will not hold the man guiltless that is breaking his pledge before the name of God. Now, Nebuchadnezzar knows that Israel's God requires this of Israel's people. So he made this man, Zedekiah, take an oath in the name of, of Zedekiah's God. And he still broke it. But so does the church world every day. I grew up in a situation where I was mailed tithe envelopes every year. I was mailed them from a circus church that is really Samaritan, but they knew that they could not keep, their people would not keep their commitments. So they pre-printed their tithe envelopes for them and sent them every year to the people. If you need somebody to remind you of a pledge you made to God, then it wasn't that, you're not that serious about your pledge to God, are you? Okay. This should be sobering to us. God does not break his word under any circumstances. And he expects his people to act like he acts. Now notice that the king breaks an oath that he makes in God's name. Well, there's something about kings that you have to realize. A king who is ruling over a people is only a symbol of what the people are doing themselves. So the king breaks an oath, but that is only a symbol of oaths that have been broken by the people over and over and over again. You remember the scripture that says, in the last days, people will heap to themselves (laughs) teachers that give them what their itching ears want to hear. Well, it's not the teachers that are the biggest problem. It's the people who heap to themselves teachers. The people of Israel have broken several oaths (coughs) over the history of their being a nation. And because they have done that, they now have a king who is an oath breaker. For example of this, let's look at Exodus 24-7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Early on in the book of Exodus, when God is giving the national covenant, the law, to the people of Israel, they say, we will do everything that is said in this book of the law. Man, how many times have we said that as Christians, right? A a, a crazy convicting message comes and we say, we will do everything that is written. Well, now compound that several generations. They did not do everything that they made an oath to do. Their children did not obey everything. Their parents made the oath. 
And then it compounded several generations until you get to Jeremiah's time. Would you, uh, would you like to put a couple New Testament pa- passages in their perspective? Yes. Their Hebrew perspective? Yes. When you eat and drink communion in an unworthy manner, you sin against the body and blood of Jesus Christ. I know you think that that has something to do with the food that is there. It really doesn't. It has to do with breaking your covenant before the Lord. When this book of the law is first enacted, they covered it in the blood of the sacrifices. Do you know what they did with the other half of the blood in Exodus 24? They threw it on the people. They, they, they sprinkled the people with it. So that there was a blood witness on the people and on the law of God that it must be obeyed. Now, if they are held accountable for the blood of that sacrifice, how much more are we held accountable for the blood of Jesus? In Christianity, we've picked up this thing like, well, he'll just forgive you, he'll forgive you, you keep doing what you want and he'll forgive you. You're deceived if you feel that way. The blood of Jesus is much more binding than the blood of bulls and goats. It's very, very important that we do what God says we do. Not just believe it, not acknowledge it, the number of people that I've encountered in the last 30 years of ministry that have had a vision, had a prophecy, had a confirming word. Yes, we're to be elders here. The Lord has shown us to hold up your arms that left within six months of being told that. Do not ever believe that they will be held guiltless on the day of judgment for those actions or that you will or that I will. It is the body and blood of Jesus that we are sinning against when we do that. Do you understand? When God says something, it's true 100 years later. It's true 700 years later. It's true 7,000 years later. It does not change based on our feelings. If the Lord has shown you something and you have accepted it and agreed to it, you must never back up from that. Or the lesson of history is it sends you and your descendants into captivity until somebody repents. Listen, we're about to come to the conclusion of this thought in Jeremiah 7 and work on a takeaway. When you hear something like, let your yes be yes and your no be no, certainly that should cause you to weigh out your words a little more. But an immature and slow takeaway from that would be to say, well, I'm just not going to commit to anything. I'm going to have to pray about that for three days before I give an answer. Just disobedience in another form. We need to review the book of James. If we know the good that we ought to do and do not do it, we sin. Now let's be real here. The issue is not our speech. The issue is our unfaithful hearts that is coming out in our speech because it's what's bound up on the inside of us. So as we examine that, there are things that we're all reaping the fruit of because we did not finish what we started or what the Lord told us to do. But what we have is today, and we can recognize the judgments that God has placed in our life that are for our refinement that we might grow. So we're going to read Jeremiah 7, but uh, without teaching the book of Lamentations, I just, uh, I'm going to brag on my friends here for a minute. Brag on the pastors and elders of this church. Jeremiah is weeping. His eyes are crying, tears without limit. And one of the things that he says in Lamentations is, the visions of your prophets, Lord, were worthless. They did not ward off captivity. 
You know what we're trying to do? We're trying to ward off captivity. We believe that you are loved of God. We believe his spirit will empower you. We believe that where you have made errors, he will help you correct them. But we will not lie to you and tell you you can do as you like and you will continue to be blessed. It will never work that way. That's how the nation that we're in got into the position that it's in right now. It believes whatever it does will be blessed. The way to blessing is to honor the things that God has said by spending your life doing them. Amen. Let's read Jeremiah 7. 7. Jeremiah 7, verses 22 through 26. For when I brought your forefathers out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command. Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in all the ways I command you, that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclination of their evil hearts. They went backwards and not forward. From the time your forefathers left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets. But they did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their forefathers. Look, I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to encourage you first for the Jew, then apply it to us. Chastisement is necessary. This is necessary as a result to what a Jeremiah is stating here. They've been stiff-necked and have not heeded the correct correction. But it's not fatal for the nation. No. God's promise will still stand for them. They will experience refinement. They will experience loss and death. And many will not make it. But some and a remnant will always be preserved. Now, failure to show up at work on time. You will experience chastisement for that. But it does not have to be fatal this evening in the same way that it is not fatal for Israel if we turn, experience it, and say, just and true are your judgments, O Lord. Refine me. Build the bride in me. Make me into the man that I'm called to be. I'm turning to you. Let's take a look at verse 14, and we'll see how this plays out. As we go into verse 14, there is a heaviness in the room, and there probably should be. It's sobering. If you don't know what else to do, Go back to the last thing that you're absolutely sure he told you to do and make sure that it gets done. Okay? If he told you to build a boat because a flood is coming, it doesn't matter if it takes 120 years. Build that boat. Okay? Charismatics are terrible about simply saying they heard from God in a new direction. He's not schizophrenic. It doesn't work that way. He means exactly what he says, and he does exactly what he says he'll do. We have to learn that. That is the overwhelming lesson of the book of Chronicles. Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful, following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. May I say furthermore? Furthermore. Furthermore. Seems like Ezra is making this in cascading statements. Like this happened and was terrible. But even more terrible than that, this happened. You know, we'd all like to blame the kings. We'd all like to blame the people around us. The pastors. But Ezra is putting the blame at the feet of the leaders and the priests who became more and more unfaithful. Now, before you equate those things to priests in the house or any other thing but yourself, 
I want you to catch something here. The people that became more and more unfaithful, the people that cascaded this judgment even further, were the people that were responsible and the people who knew the best that what they were doing is wrong. They were the ones that had the most knowledge of the word. They were the ones that had the most knowledge of his will, and they became more and more unfaithful. I want to read to you Luke 12, 47 through 48, and I want you to catch something here. It says, That servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Now I want you to notice, neither one of those two servants escaped the judgment. Both of them were judged. But the one that was judged the most is the one that knew his master's will. Now all of us would like to think of ourselves as not being that knowledgeable about the Bible, right? Not knowing that much about God's will. I mean, we have great pastors and we rely on them to teach us and know God's will for us. Didn't work that way. The truth is, is that you sitting right here, you know more of the scripture and more of God's will than probably 95% of all of Christianity. You see, we condemn ourselves by our own knowledge by not putting into practice the things that we know we ought to do. We heap coals upon our head over and over. You know, and even Jesus said, if you would have said that you were ignorant, you would not be judged severely. But because you say you know God's will, you will be judged more harshly. We have to be careful in our our orthopraxy. We cannot let our orthodoxy lead us into thinking that our orthopraxy does not matter. What you do is everything. And you will be judged by what God has given you previously if you do not put it into practice. Aren't you glad that we're taking 100 days to get our marriages right? Yes. Aren't you glad that we're taking 100 days to get our parenting right? Man, aren't you glad that for the next 100 days we're focusing on understanding the times we're in and gathering in the seed of the Word of God, cultivating our heart, becoming a, a productive persevering church that's because we're confident of very good things in your life but these are very sobering times and you you shouldn't wait until there's a mob outside your house to get serious about the lord now is the time let's pick up in verse 15 the lord the god of their fathers sent word to them through his messengers again Say again Again. and again. again. People that view the Older Testament as a God of wrath and anger and the Newer Testament is different understand neither Testament. They are one Testament. It is one God showing mercy and compassion by repeatedly warning over hundreds of years because he does not want any to perish. That's why we preach on the same subject so much. Read it again. The Lord. The God of their fathers sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. He had pity on two things, his people and the place where his name dwelt. He cared about both. He cares about the people and he cares about the land. They both belong to him. We should care about both the people and the land as well. 
Now pay attention to a few words in this next verse. But they mocked God's message. They did what? Mocked. Despised his words. They did what? Despised. Despised. And scoffed. What? Scoffed. At his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. Look, Zedekiah has rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar. It was Nebuchadnezzar's ninth year of his reign. This is about 588 B.C. That's chronicled in 2 Kings 25 verse 1. And despite all of the increasing perils, the warning, warning, no warning, this guy will not repent and turn to the Lord. But it's not just him. It's also the other leaders. It's also the general population. Yeah. So you shouldn't think that this is a Zedekiah problem. Zedekiah is a reflection of the people, much in the same way that every administration in our country is a reflection of the people. We have gotten exactly what we let happen. We've gotten exactly what most of the nation wants. Say we don't want it, but we would have something different if it's not what we wanted. Okay. Now, in the Hebrew language, these three words, mocked, despised, and scoffed, have kind of fun, interesting meanings. We're going to put them on the slide for you. The first one is the word for mocked. Mocked. 3931, a verb meaning to mock, to make a game of somebody. And our favorite part, because it's convicting when we were reading it, (laughs) it means to not take... Seriously, via that context, to make fun of or to show that you despise it because it was not something that you heeded to the point where it showed up in your actions. Look, to mock something is to not take it seriously or despise it by the proof of your own deeds. Look, last week we got to look at three words together that put a new meaning to it for us and it got us repenting. Yeah. They mocked God's word by showing that they did not actually treat it as serious. We're going to examine our own hearts because we are growing. Our homes are getting stronger in every area we are going to win. And there's not going to be an area that we mock God's word or God's discipline by refusing to take it seriously. And you understand that not one of us would say that we would ever mock God's word. But if God's word comes to us and we do not do what it says... In Hebrew thought, we are mocking it through our actions. Let's clarify that. Hebrew thought is God's thought. It's the culture he set up. That's how he views it, not just another place far, far away. Maybe that's why the Bible says in explicit terms, do not be fooled. God will not be So the next word is for despised. They despised his words. That Hebrew word is baza. It's a verb meaning to hold in contempt or despise. The verb means to hold in disdain, to disrespect. It can mean to prefer something more than the thing despised. So to simply just desire something more than that. Think of Esau's birthright in Genesis 25. It means to not treat something with proper respect. Now that's so scary for us. To not show proper respect just like Esau did. What did Esau do? The birthright came to him. He did not show it proper respect or honor. See, this is what happens when we do not take the words of God seriously. And we don't let them take root inside of of us. We're not showing proper respect 
or weight or honor to the word. We just treat it as if it's something common. Now, that scares the shield out of me because how many times have I sat on a Sunday morning and just treated the message as if it's something common and didn't show it respect? This is something that we all have to get right, and thank God we get the opportunity to get it right. The third one, scoffed, like in the last days there will be scoffers, is ta'ah. It's Strong's number 8591, to deceive or to misuse. They didn't, it's not that they didn't know the words of the prophets. It's not that they didn't hear them. It's that they misused the words of the prophets. They practiced deception. They heard in whatever the prophet said the thing they wanted to hear, wow. not the thing that the prophet said. Yeah. You, you, you catch that? Yeah. This is what false prophets will be doing in the last days. Why would God allow false prophets to speak in his name, quoting his word, but not the right way at the right time? Because it's what the people want. The people want to hear in whatever a prophet says the thing that they would like. That's why Zedekiah is saying, hey, go get Jeremiah to come prophesy to us. Maybe a miraculous thing will happen. He wants what he wants from Jeremiah. And no matter what Jeremiah says to him, he hears only what he wants. We just described 80% of the congregants in this country. No matter what is preached. You're hearing it, what you want to hear. Can I tell you, friends, you need people in your life that tell you the one thing that you do not want to hear? Yeah. You, you need that sobering thing. It, an enemy is one who is multiplying kisses, like Judas. What we actually need is the righteous man to smack us in the face mm-hmm. so that we wake up and go, Oh, that would cause captivity. I'm not doing it. I didn't realize I was doing it. I'm sorry. I repent. Tear your clothes. Change your heart. Okay? That's, that's, that's what built this ministry. Yeah. It's why most of you are sitting here. is because you want the issues of your own heart addressed so that you can cultivate it. Yeah. It's also why we go to a medical doctor. You do not go to that medical doctor because you are hoping he'll tell you what you want to hear. You go so that he will warn you about something you probably have an inkling is true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't want to face it, and once he tells you, you know that you must face yeah. it. Okay? Look. You're going to a physician to tell you what you want to hear. Well, you're probably going to die pretty quickly. <laughs> As we get ready to pick up in verse 17. If it is true, the vast majority of the congregants in our country. Let's make sure that it's not true of our counseling situations. Those moments where you're hearing what you want to hear despite what your brother or what the pastor is saying and you reformat it to fit your own vision. We will take the good words, the prophecies, the instruction that is being given that will ward off captivity in our own lives by heeding it. And by taking these three words to heart and ensuring that it is not us and we will be warned and we will walk in the right path by doing that. Let's pick up in verse 17, and we're going to read on down to 19. <clears throat> he brought up against them the king of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary. Wow. And spared neither young man nor young woman, old or age. God handled all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon, to Babylon all the articles of the temple of God, both large and small, 
and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his, and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke Ooh. down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. Somebody say strike one. Strike one. Somebody say strike two. strike two. Somebody say strike three. Strike three. We've had warning and warning and warning and judgment after judgment. Now we're at the finality. This is the third siege that Nebuchadnezzar's army has delivered. This one is a smashing, crushing blow brought to, that will destroy Judah's independence. It brings it to an end. They're no longer allowed to reign, no longer subservient. They're going to cease to exist as a political entity, at least up to this point. Young and old alike were killed, and many others were taken as prisoners. The valuable treasures of the temple were looted, and the building itself was burned and reduced to rubble, along with the palaces. And the city's walls were broken down. Look, a favorite scripture of Peyton Parsons comes out of Proverbs 25. A man who lacks diligence or does not tend to the things that God has given is like a man with broken down walls, and that's begun to define the city now. Those who escaped death were taken to Babylon, where they existed as slaves until Babylon's fall to Persia at about 539 B.C. Look, this reminds us of the severity and kindness of God that is the cha uh, uh, chapter in Romans, Romans 11. The chapter ends in hope and also illustrates the judgment and heavy weight that is on God's people. This is a pattern that exists in the word that was ingrained in Paul's psyche because he knew his own history. And he knew his God who had brought it about on his own people. Ezra is writing about these events, this destruction, after the fact, but before the temple of God has been fully completed. He's in the interim. He knows the judgment that has taken place and that God is restoring them even though they have not reached the fullness of it yet. Man, that's quite the perspective to be writing from. It gives us insight about what we do in the interim between the judgment of God descending on the earth and the full restoration of all things. The position of understanding these prophecies. God is never done with Israel because he's a promise-keeping God. When you're hearing these things, you need to remember it. Ezra understands that the Davidic promise has not gone away. That is why, despite each of the events we've been reading about, he continues to thread God's original words through while facing the reality of the judgment and not shying away from it. Earlier we read Psalm 119, and we want to read it to you again. Verse 49 and 50. Remember your word to your servant, for you have given me hope. My comfort in my suffering is this. Your promise preserves my life. Look, we want to simply say, my comfort in my suffering is this. Not avoiding it, not outside of it, not going around it, but in the suffering is the promise of God, and that's what preserves the life of the righteous. Amen. We're going to learn to store up these things in our heart and let gratefulness overflow in a way that shapes the world around us. Amen. Can you all give us your full attention for ten more minutes? Yes. yes. We'll finish right at two hours, and you will have learned things that you didn't know before, just like you have every week. All right, verse 20 through 21. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant, who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him, 
and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. All the time of, of its desolation it rested. Until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken to Jeremiah. Now it's interesting that Ezra records this. That very specific point about the land itself. Most of us when we think about the judgment of God to the people of Judah. Well we think it results from all of the sin that they did towards other people or towards their God. But there's a third factor there. It is the land. They sinned against the land. And Ezra's making a point here. They're going to go into captivity for 70 years. And it's a result from 490 years of not letting the land enjoy its Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Look, let's get into Leviticus 25, verse 3 through 6. Who wants to read that? Chris, you get it. And then we'll go to Leviticus 25, 18 through 24. Uh, Hayes, you get that. And then we'll get into Leviticus 26, 32 through 35. And Nolan's going to get that. And you're going to see how much God cares about his land. Leviticus 25, 3 through 4. 3 through 5. For six years sow your fields, and for six years prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year the land is to have a Sabbath of rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. So God mandated that for his people they are supposed to have a Sabbath rest. He mandated that even every animal in Israel is supposed to have a Sabbath rest. And he mandated that the land that he is giving them has to have a Sabbath rest because it's his land. He wanted that command to be fulfilled throughout all of the generations, and you're getting the idea that it was ignored. Who's got Leviticus 25, 18 through 24? Leviticus 25, 18 through 24. Follow my decrees and be careful to obey my laws, and you will live safely in the land. Then the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and live there in safety. You may ask, what will we eat in the seventh year if we do not plant or harvest our crops? I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. (coughs) When you plant during the eighth year, you will eat from the old crop and will continue to eat from it until the harvest of the ninth year comes in. So pause right there. He's telling them, if you obey what I'm saying, I will support you. If you have the faith to just obey what I'm saying, I will support you. Pick up in verse 23. The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you are but aliens and my tenants. Oh man, whose is the land? You see, it doesn't belong to Israel. It doesn't belong to the people. It is God's land. Keep going. Throughout the country that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. You see, in God's promise, it includes several key factors. There is a man that is Abraham and his family. There is a land that they are to be given, but it is not theirs entirely. What does it say? They are aliens and tenants. They They are just there to work God's land. And then on top of that, there is a plan of restoration for those people and for that land that includes all of them together. This is not well understood in Christianity, and it is in Judaism, and, and we really have to grab hold of this. The covenant that God makes with Abraham is also a covenant with a specific piece of dirt. God holds that so seriously that Ezra lays 
the captivity at the feet of not honoring God's covenant with the land. See, when Christians preach and teach about this, we say, well, this was so they could display faith, and it is. And if they don't do it, they're not displaying faith. And, and that is all true, but it's less than half the truth. There is a very specific place on the planet where God said, my name will dwell. There are physical borders that he said, this land is beautiful and it's mine. And when we do not recognize that, we are cutting one-third of the covenant out. It's with a specific people, and it's a specific land, and it's a specific plan. That also would fix several branches of theology, because he was never talking about Norway. He was not talking about Mexico, and he was not talking about the United States. And both Jeremiah, the book of Leviticus, and the book of Chronicles... Of, and of course, this is law, prophets, writings that we have, lay the captivity not just on the behavior of the people, but on the treatment of the land. Because wow. it is a three-way covenant. And we have to grab hold of that, or else you start getting really stupid, wrong ideas that any land anywhere could be Israel. Right. No, there's no other place on the planet that God says, I'm going to send you people into captivity because of the way you've treated that piece of dirt, except his land. And he says it repeatedly. It's not a one or two kind of thing. If we read our, our Tanakh more, we would know this. Okay, Grab hold of the fact that it's a three-way covenant, and let's move forward to what he said he would do if you did not honor the covenant with the land. Yeah. This is Leviticus 26:32. I will lay waste the land so that your enemies who live there will be appalled. I will scatter you among the nations and will draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste and your cities will lie in ruins. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years all the time that it lies desolate and you are in the country of your enemies. Wow. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths all the time that it lies desolate. The land will have the rest it did not have during the Sabbaths you lived in. But simply put, God did exactly what he said he was going to do. We're going to hear about the restoration of things in the coming verses, and we don't have time to go into it this evening, but for your own study, go read Daniel 9. The man was reading about these events and recognized that they were coming to their fruition And his prayer wasn't that God would save him. It wasn't that he would be forgiven. His prayer was that they would be brought back to the one spot on the earth that God had made a covenant with while he was a captive in a foreign land, just as Leviticus 26 said would happen. Let's read verse 22, and you're going to hear about Ezra's perspective because he has seen the time between Zedekiah and what would happen. Verse 22 and 23. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the the Lord moves the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and put it into writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord, his God, be with him and let him go up. Man, it's grieving to hear about the judgment of Jerusalem, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. 
But look what Ezra does here at the end of the passage. Yeah. In the last chapter of the last book of the Tanakh, Ezra is recording the judgment of his own nation, but he ends with the beginning of the restoration of that nation. Man, he doesn't leave it there at the judgment. He doesn't leave the promise in captivity. Ezra, writing from his standpoint, he is still there building the second temple. And he leaves his book, his great book that he is writing for the world, he leaves it at the beginning of the restoration of the promise. Can I put that in eschatological perspective for you? He has received a word that has not yet fully come about. He's standing in the land, but he doesn't have all the tribes there. He doesn't have all that. But he knows for sure, based on the pattern of what God has said and done, that it is going to occur. Yes. Yes. Amen. Look, there's something that many of you probably noticed, but we're going to camp here for a little bit. Cyrus. Cyrus is speaking to the exiles, and he says, Ezra's recording what he says, Any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him, and let him go up. Go up! I want to tell you, Jerusalem is a lot south of where they are standing. But Cyrus, even Cyrus, a pagan king, recognizes that there is something about this restoration that they are going to go up towards. They are going to be restored up to the place where they were. You want to know what that word go up is? It's Aliyah. It means the great returning. It means the great going up, the great restoration. Look, I want to put that Hebrew word there for you. It is Old Testament 5927, Aliyah. It means to ascend. Say ascend. Ascend. It means to actively mount, to be high. Say be high. Be high. It's used in a great variety of senses. It means in the King James, it's used to arise up out of a situation. Ezra ends his book saying, That Cyrus decreed, you shall arise up out of this situation. You shall ascend up at once. You shall break the day up. (laughs) So let's grab hold of something as we're closing here. A Gentile whose heart was moved by God caused the people of Israel to be envious for the place where God's name dwells and to return to faithfulness. Now, do, can you hear that in Paul's writings at all? Has anybody read Hebrew or Revel, uh, uh, Romans 9 through 11? Okay. But this word is related to several in Hebrew. They have the same root. Also, when you have a burnt offering and it ascends before God, it's Olah, like Allah or Aliyah. They all have the same root. Out of the ashes of judgment, faithfulness is beginning to ascend into the heavens again. Sometimes you got to rise up, friend. Sometimes you got to get up. You got to go up. You got to Korban before your Lord. He wants you to draw near. He didn't call you because he wants to judge you for unfaithfulness. He's looking for you to go up in faithfulness and return to that throne. Of God. The last words in the Tanakh, very last word, is you gotta go up. 
And it is a Gentile whose heart's moved by God reminding the Jewish people of what is theirs and not his. Oh, would you stand to your feet? You know, there are many beautiful usages of this word. I have to say, though, I found a favorite today. Anybody agree that the days around us are growing darker? Yes. In a way you can kind of feel, not just from watching the news, but praying and getting in the throne room, the council of God. Another variant of how this word can be used is the breaking of the dawn. Come on. <laughs> and it's not dependent upon what the circumstances are around. They're sitting in darkness, and yet there was a breaking of the dawn inside of them. Light began to shine forth. They were arising like the sun coming up after a long, long night of darkness. I think this evening there are many of you that I've known for years that it's time for a breaking of the dawn in your life. Yeah. That the slumber needs to be awakened. Yeah. That it's our time to awaken and rise and meet the calling that God has destined for us to live in. Amen. All that we're learning to do now is shake off the low living of the past and be the men and women that we were always destined to be renewed in his image. So we pray. What we want to do is praise our almighty God and tell him just and true are your judgments. Honestly, without help from someone else, reckon with the bronze halter about the things that we have not reckoned with, that we've refused to face. Be renewed into the image of the men and women that we are called to be and not accept a lesser form of it. And be empowered by the Spirit of God and the Word of God and let it live in us richly this evening. Raise your hands with me as we pray.